0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, So That You May Believe, the Study of the Seven Signs Jesus Performed in the Gospel of John
1: open in your Bibles, the Gospel of John chapter 6. That's where we'll be continuing in our series that we've been doing for the past several weeks called So That You May Believe. And in this series, we're looking at the seven miracles, or as John calls them, signs that Jesus performed. And he tells us that he recorded these for us so that you may believe. Today we're looking at the fifth of these seven signs here in the Gospel of John chapter 6. So please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and for your grace. Lord, in the midst of the chaos of this world, thank you, Lord, that you are our stable point and the one that we can look to, hold on to, and trust in. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would encourage us from your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you have for us in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, my neighbors next door moved away. And as they were moving away, they were packing up their moving truck. And as happens, right when you move, you unload your garage, your shed, all that stuff, they were giving me a lot of stuff. And one of the things they gave me was a kayak. They said, hey, do you want this kayak? I was like, absolutely, I want a kayak. And so they gave me this kayak. And so for the past few years, uh, now I've had this kayak, so whenever we go camping, we'll take the kayak with us, we'll go out on lakes and rivers, we've, we've ridden it down, you know, like the Yampa River through the rapids and things like that, it's been a ton of fun. And this kayak, right, it has a removable fin on the back of it so that you can, you know, when you're going down rivers, you can take it out, but if you're going on a lake in open water, you can put this fin on and it acts like a rudder. Well, at some point in transporting and moving around a lot, uh, hauling this thing around, we lost the fin. Now, the kayak still works just fine, but it's it's just really hard to navigate it, like steer it when you're out on open water, like out on a lake. And so, you know, this past summer, I was out and was with my daughter. We went camping, and we were on this pretty large lake. And when we got out into the middle of the lake, right, without any rudder on the back, the wind picked up and it was blowing away-blowing us away from our camp and the rest of our family. So the way this works, right, is like if you are, if you have the wind behind you pushing you in the direction you want to go, the kayak works great. But if the wind is coming from the side or if it's coming against you, it's just super hard to navigate. So I was paddling as hard as I could, you know, fighting the wind and the waves, but we weren't making any progress. We were kind of just stuck in the middle of this lake. And after a while, you, know, you get totally exhausted. It's very frustrating, as you can imagine, to work that hard and not get where you're trying to go. And there's this temptation when that happens that you you kind of feel like, man, I should just give up. Like, what's the point in fighting the wind and the waves here? I should just let them take me and carry me wherever they want to go. But if you do that, of course, you're going to end up really, really far away from, from where you even left off. And isn't that experience of being in a boat, wouldn't you say that? That's a lot like life, right? There are a lot of parallels there, isn't there? Sometimes it feels like the wind is at your back and everything's clicking, everything's going your way, everything's falling into place, you're making progress easily. But there are a lot of other times when it feels like the wind is against you and no matter how hard you work, you're not making any progress. So everything's stacked against you and you're not getting where you want to go. So the question is, where do you find the strength to keep on going in times like that, to not just give up or give in to temptation or to complacency? Not to mention, you know, the world we live in right now It seems so chaotic, doesn't it? It seems so unpredictable. Just this past week, there was an unimaginable tragedy in a school in Texas. The week before, a a similar tragedy in a grocery store in New York. And none of those people involved in that, none of them woke up that day expecting something like that to happen. There are things in life that happen that are unpredictable. And so the question is in the midst of a chaotic and unpredictable world, how do you avoid succumbing and drowning in fear? Where can we find the strength and the courage we need to live our lives without being slaves to fear and without giving up in the face of adversity? Well, in our passage today, we're going to see the answers to those questions. The title of today's message is Courage in the Midst of Chaos. And we're going to see in this passage, our our summary sentence, kind of our takeaway truth. That's also our outline for studying the passage. Here's what it is. In the midst of frustration and chaos, the presence and promises of Jesus give us courage and strength. So one more time. In the midst of frustration and chaos, the presence and promises of Jesus give us courage and strength. So we're going to take that sentence and we're going to break it down and that'll be our outline for how we study this passage. So let's take that, and again, we'll we'll break it down into two parts. First part is this, in the midst of frustration and chaos. That's the first thing we see in this story. In our current series, again, we're looking at the seven signs that Jesus performed that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John. And At the end of this book, at the end of John's Gospel, John tells us why he wrote this book in the way that he did. Here's what he says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And what's unique about John's gospel is that John doesn't refer to Jesus' miracles as miracles. Of course they were miracles, but John refers to them as signs. He says that they're signs. Now the nature of a sign is that a sign points you to something else. It shows you the way to somewhere or to something. And so, in other words, what John is telling us is that the miracles Jesus performed, they weren't just cool things that Jesus could do that he did just because they were awesome. No, no, no. Jesus did these things, John wants us to know, for a purpose. They had a purpose. They pointed to something beyond themselves. And so here in this book, John highlights seven of Jesus' miracles And shows us how those miracles were signs. And and here's what each of the miracles show us. They were signs pointing to who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, what he has to offer you, and how you can receive it. And here's what I love about these seven signs, what's so interesting as we go through this series, is that each of these signs points us to and points out a unique aspect, a different aspect, a unique aspect of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Well, here in John chapter 6, we actually have two of the seven signs in one chapter. In our study last week, we looked at the first of those in this chapter, the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, which is the feeding of the 5,000. Well, the next miracle that we're going to read about today, it took place immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, just a few hours later, and it's recorded in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, and here in John. We're going to be looking at all three of those passages today. In our study last week, we saw how Jesus, he miraculously fed those 5,000 people, it was actually more than 5,000, we know that, but 5,000 men at least, in the wilderness on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and the people who saw that miracle, they immediately realized and understood that the miracle was a sign that Jesus was the Messiah, a sign that Jesus was the Messiah, which is why we read in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus did come to be a king, but not in the way that these people imagined or understood or expected or assumed. The Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, they said that the Messiah, when he came, he would be a king a descendant of King David, and he would establish a kingdom on the earth with Jerusalem as its capital. And so these people were, were not wrong in their conclusion that if Jesus is the Messiah, then that means that he is a king. And that's why he came. They weren't wrong. They were actually right about that. What they got wrong is that they expected Jesus to be just another earthly king, just like all the other earthly kings that we've, we've known and seen and experienced. You see, here's the thing, if they would have just read those Old Testament prophecies more carefully, they would have noticed that the Messiah was going to be a different kind of king than the kings which they had known up until that point. You see, what these people wanted or hoped for in a king was something less than what Jesus came to do. All they wanted was someone who would drive out the Romans and make Israel great again. But the Messiah he was going to come to do something much bigger than that, something much better than that. The Messiah, the prophecies say, he would come to establish an eternal kingdom and he wouldn't just drive out the Romans. He would deal with the thing that is at the very root of all oppression and injustice and corruption. And so knowing that these people didn't yet get it, that they didn't yet understand who he was, that their view and their hope for him was too small And if he didn't get out of there, they were going to try and arrest him, if you will, and force him to be their king. Jesus said, you know what? I need to just bow out and get out of here. And it says that he withdrew, verse 15, from the crowd to the mountain by himself. So he went up on this mountain by himself. Matthew's gospel tells us a little bit more detail about this. It tells us that Jesus told his disciples to go and get in the boat. He said, you guys go get in the boat and you go ahead over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, back to Capernaum and I'm going to stay here. I'm going to go up on this mountain and pray. And so while the disciples are making their way down to the shore to get back in their boat, to get onto the water and head back across to the other side, Jesus goes up on the mountain by himself. Now, when it says that Jesus went up on the mountain, I want you to keep this in mind. The mountain it's talking about, don't imagine one of like the alpine peaks that we have here, the high peaks that we have in the Rockies. The, the mountain on the east shore of the Sea of Galilee, you know what it's like? It's kind Kind of like Table Mountain down in, in Golden. It's actually a lot like that, right? It's a steep mesa. It's a mountain, but it's, it's not like an alpine peak. It's more like a mesa, or if you know, Steamboat Mountain in Lyons. It's a, a steep mesa, not an alpine peak. And so why is Jesus going up on this mountain? Well, the, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, See, here's the thing. Throughout the Bible, high places like mountains are associated with the idea of meeting with God, communing with God. You go up to these high places to meet and commune with God. They, these high places, they conjure up the idea, even just you know, by looking at them visually, they conjure up the idea of the meeting of heaven and earth. And that's why historically, if you look at the kinds of buildings that people have built as churches and temples, they often build them in the shape of a mountain, right? With a top stretching to the sky because mountains and high places are associated in the Bible and in our minds with the idea of meeting with God. Now, on the one hand, the Bible makes it crystal clear that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. He's not just in the mountains. He's also present in the valleys. You know, Psalm 23, it says, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? Anywhere I go, you are there. So of course, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere equally at all times. And yet the Bible uses this poetic imagery, wherein valleys are described as being places of darkness and death, and mountains are places of security and communion with God, even in the collective memory and the history of the people of Israel. Remember, God met with Moses. Where? At the top of Mount Sinai. Moses went up Mount Sinai to meet with God. The temple Where was it built? It's built in Jerusalem on the top of a mountain from anywhere in Israel. You're always going up to Jerusalem to the meeting place of God. Mount Zion, this picture that's used as a picture of heaven, is a mountain. And so when Jesus goes up on the mountain, understand he's not just going for like a solo night hike. Jesus is going up on the mountain to commune with God and spend time in prayer. And So Jesus is going up on this mountain to pray, and that alone, by the way, is worth pausing and thinking about for just a moment. Jesus just had a long, exhausting day ministering to the physical and spiritual needs of these multitudes of people. And the one thing Jesus wants to do in order to charge his batteries, in order to be refreshed, what does he want to do? He wants to pray and spend time with the Father. And what Jesus is showing us here by his example is that prayer and time spent with God is a refuge, not a chore. Do you know that? It's a refuge, not a chore. And what a wonderful thing it is to be able to speak to God about what's going on in your life and what he's doing. It's a refuge in which you can pour out your heart and in which God can renew and refresh your soul. In Acts chapter 3, for example, the Apostle Peter is speaking to a group of people and he's telling them how times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. In Psalm 16, it says that in God's presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So again, what we learn from Jesus here in this passage by his example is that prayer and time spent with God is a refuge, not a chore. It's a gift that you get to enjoy. And I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that I'm taking those opportunities to commune with God because they're so good. They're so needed, so necessary for me. And my soul, right? Uh, Of course, listen, you can talk to God anywhere. That's what people always say. Well, can't I just talk to God as I go about your day? Of course you can. And I hope that you will. But I want you to just notice something that's here in Jesus' example, that there's something to be said for dedicated times of seeking the Lord and cultivating your relationship with him, setting aside time, going away, finding a place as we see Jesus doing here. Well, as Jesus is up on the mountain praying, look at what the disciples are doing in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. It says they got into the boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And it says in verse 18 the sea became rough. Because a strong wind was blowing. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So the disciples, they set out to sea just as Jesus instructed him to do. Now keep that in mind. They're doing this because Jesus told them to do it. They're doing what he told them to do. And while they're out at sea, a strong wind begins to blow. Now when it says that a strong wind began to blow, what you need to know is that the Sea of Galilee is infamous for sudden and violent storms, and the reason is because the Sea of Galilee, where it's located, if you get to go to Israel, you'll experience this, right? It's it's inland; it's an inland sea, and it's actually located six hundred feet below sea level. That that whole Jordan Valley sits below sea level. You know, going through the uh, through the Sea of Galilee and then down near Jericho and going towards there, the Dead Sea. It's all way below sea level. So what happens is, you know, it's very close to the Mediterranean Sea. Actually, it's separated from the Mediterranean Sea by a range of mountains. And so when you come from the west towards the east, you cross these mountains. And then when you get into the region of Galilee, you just go down, 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 down because this lake sits 600 feet below sea level. So what happens is when storms come over the Mediterranean Sea, they come in, they go over the mountains, and then they just dive down into this deep chasm, this deep valley where this sea, this large lake is located. And as a result, the wind comes in, it comes fast, It comes furious, and it can whip the Sea of Galilee up into a fury. And this is well known even to this day. Now, remember, the disciples, they're traveling from east to east to west across the sea. The storms come from the Mediterranean Sea. They come from west to east. So in other words, they're rowing right into the face of this storm, right into the face of these waves. Mark's gospel describes the situation like this. It tells us that the disciples were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, this part of the Sea of Galilee, by the way, it's about six miles wide at this part near Capernaum. And it says there in verse 19 that when they had rowed about three or or four miles. In other words, what that tells us is that they're in the very center, the very middle of the lake. They're miles from either shore. And remember, they set out in the evening. After the feeding of 5,000, right after sunset. But Matthew's gospel tells us that they were out on the lake fighting the wind and the waves until the fourth watch of the night. Fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., right before dawn. In other words, they were out there in this storm, straining at the oars with the wind against them, and they were doing it for hours. They're out there for hours. You can imagine their hands bloody from fighting the wind and waves as they hold on to their oars. They're rowing and rowing with all of their might, exhausting themselves, and yet they're going nowhere. They're stuck. They're not making any progress. They're not moving forward. That phrase, straining at the oars, Doesn't it invoke in you just memories and thoughts and feelings of of both physical exhaustion and emotional exhaustion? If you've ever rowed a boat, you know how physically exhausting it can be. But the emotional side of it is also very real. How many of you know that experience of trying really hard or wanting something really bad and yet it feels like everything's against you? and you're not getting where you wanna go. This phrase, straining at the oars, because the wind was against them, it invokes the idea of a fruitless activity, a futile endeavor. Maybe you had a vision of something you wanted to do, and it was a good thing, right? You wanted to do a good thing. Remember, in this case, they're doing what they're doing because Jesus told them to do it. And so you set out to do it, you put in work, you put in effort, But even though you're giving it everything you've got, trying as hard as you can, you're not seeing the results that you wanted to see. Despite your best efforts, you're not getting where you wanted to go. And as a result, there's a physical, but also a very emotional strain. You know, amongst pastors and Christian leaders, there's a lot of talk about what they call burnout, right? So there's a lot of literature on it and talks about it, burnout. Burnout is when you're just going hard for so long that eventually you burn yourself out, kind of like an engine that never gets the oil changed it's that burnout is what they call it. Now, now listen, I'm sure that burnout is not just something that's unique to people who are employed in Christian ministry. That's just the world that I move in. You know, that's a people that I know. I'm sure though that maybe in the vocations that you work in, it's very common for people to get burned out as well. I remember a few years ago, I had a friend who told me that he was experiencing burnout and I was trying to help him. So I was looking into some ways to help him to do better. And at first I said, well, you know, maybe you just need to dial back on your workload and that should fix the problem. So I helped him decrease the number of things that he had to do every week. But he still said, you know what, even though I'm not doing as much as I was before, I still feel burned out. Like I'm just, I still feel terrible and exhausted and burned out. And I I came across, as I was looking into this, I came across some writings about this topic of burnout. And one writer said this, he said, for a lot of people, maybe most people, when they talk about being burned out, what they're really saying or experiencing is discouragement, right? What they're experiencing is discouragement because most people don't mind hard work. Most people don't mind even working hard over a prolonged period of time. As long as you can see the results, as long as you can feel like your work is effective and you're doing something. But when you work really hard and it gets you nowhere, that's discouraging, And I shared that with this friend of mine, and he said, yeah, that's exactly it, you know? He said, my feeling of being burned out, it's not something that can be fixed just by doing less things or by taking a vacation, right? It It wasn't just a physical exhaustion. It was emotional, too. It was that feeling of dismay that you have, that spirit of heaviness that comes from putting in effort and trying hard and just feeling discouraged because despite your best efforts, things aren't going the way that you hoped they would. I'm sure that all of us can relate to that on some level. Maybe you, you've experienced it with your studies at school. You're, you're studying hard. You're trying, but it feels like you're not getting anywhere, that you're not succeeding. Or in your job at work, you're putting in effort. You're trying, and it just feels like you're stuck or, or everything's against you. Or with your kids. Or maybe in your marriage, you feel like you put in the effort, but yet you're discouraged because it doesn't seem to be moving things forward or fixing things. Or in regard to maybe a ministry you're involved in or some other relationship or endeavor, maybe it feels like effort is being exhausted, but it's fruitless. You see the disciples in this boat in the midst of this storm, straining at the oars with the wind against them. Now keep in mind the reason they're out there, the entire reason they're there in the first place is because Jesus told them to go. In other words, what they're doing right now is exactly what Jesus told them to do. Friends, do you, do you realize what this means? It means that it is totally possible for you to be right in the center of God's will for your life. And it will be frustrating and it may be hard. You see, so often we think the opposite of that. We think, well, if, if something's hard, then it must be that this isn't God's will for my life. Or it runs contrary to our way of thinking, right? We assume if I'm in God's will, if I'm doing what God wants, then everything should be easy. Everything should go smooth. And then we're, we're weirded out, like when it happens the opposite way. But I want you to see this. Even in this story, that's not always the case. Sometimes, like these disciples you can be doing exactly what Jesus told you to do. And it will be frustrating and hard. It may feel fruitless. It may feel like you're giving it your utmost effort and accomplishing nothing. But there's another piece of this that's really important to take note of. You see, just as mountains and high places represented security and peace and meeting with God, bodies of water in the Bible, in that poetic language... They represent something else. Bodies of water in the Bible represent chaos, instability, and death. Chaos, instability, and death. Think about it. Water is always moving. It's unstable. It's unpredictable. There is this phrase that's used, by the way, throughout the Bible, this phrase, the depths. Sometimes it's called the deep. It's a metaphor, speaking of water. It speaks of being submerged underwater, but it's a metaphor that speaks of, it's a phrase that means, it speaks of death and separation from God. And of course, in the Jewish mind, as we read the Bible, there's this memory of the flood when because of chaos and sin, the earth was submerged underwater, bringing death and judgment. So whereas the high places spoke of communion with God, the seas and the waters, they spoke of separation from God. Whereas the mountains represent security and stability, the sea represents instability and chaos. So not only are the disciples straining against the wind, exhausted and discouraged, but look at this, they're in a context that is very chaotic the waves are crashing against their boat. There's no stability. There's fear that at any moment, the churning chaos that's out there, outside the boat could come crashing over the edge and pull them under and submerge them. And doesn't that just perfectly describe our experience as people living in the world today? There's so much turmoil, so much turbulence. You know, we're only a couple years into this decade. But even this decade, think about all that's happened, all the turmoil, all the turbulence. Right? We had a global pandemic. We've had political unrest. We've had a contested election. The George Floyd stuff last year. Right now, there's inflation, gun violence, war in Ukraine, threats of nuclear war. Not to mention, I don't know if you have heard about monkeypox, but if you hadn't, that's coming too, Right? We live in a world where, well, the things that we thought were stable and sure are are not anymore, right? Even things like identity and gender, everything is being questioned. Everything that seemed to be so obvious and so stable, so secure, it's all being shaken. And like the disciples in the boat, there's this fear that at any moment, the chaos that's out there in the world could just come crashing over the edge of your life, into your life and affect you personally. So what do you do in a moment like that? How do you deal with a moment, with a situation like they were in and like the one that we're in now? Well, that brings us to the second and last part of our sentence, which is this. In the midst of frustration and chaos, the presence and promises of Jesus give us courage and strength. The promises and presence of Jesus give us courage and strength. Look again at Mark chapter 6, verse 48. There's a part of this verse that I left out the first time I read it, and I left it out on purpose because I wanted to bring it up now. It says this, that as the disciples were straining at the oars with the wind against them, notice what it says there. It says that Jesus saw them. Jesus saw them. In the midst of their frustration, in the midst of that chaotic situation, Jesus saw them. He wasn't just up on the mountain praying with his eyes closed. He was up on the mountain watching them, keeping his eye on them. He never took his eye off of them. And friends, I want you to know this, that in whatever you're going through right now, frustration, chaos, whatever it might be, Jesus sees you and he cares about what you're going through. And the good news is he's got a plan. He's not going to just let you be lost. He's going to come to you just as he came to them. Look at what it says in verse 19. It says, Then they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. You see, Jesus set this whole thing up. He sent them out on the sea. He went up on the mountain to pray and to watch. And when the time was right, he came to them walking on the sea, walking on the water. By walking to them on the water, Jesus is showing them that he is more powerful than the raging sea. Even though the sea is churning and unstable and chaotic, Jesus is able to stand on top of it. He is solid. He is stable. Even in the midst of the the turbulence and turmoil of this world. Friends, if you want stability and security, it is found in him. The raging sea and all that it represents, fear, chaos, death. Look at what it says in Psalm 77. It says, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and they were afraid. The waters, this thing that invokes fear in the hearts of men. The waters look at God and they are afraid. The depths, this representation of death and separation, they trembled at the sight of God. Why? Because he came to put an end to it forever. You see, it says in this, in Psalm 93, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. The fact that Jesus walked on water again, it wasn't just a cool thing that Jesus could do. And he's showing them, Hey, look what I can do. No, no, no. This miracle was a sign. It was a sign of who Jesus is and what he came to do. First of all, it's a sign that Jesus is God. He is the one who, like the psalmist said, is mightier than the waves of the sea. And rather than fearing death, death fears him. The depths fear him because he came to conquer the power of death, to put an end to death forever. And there in verse 20, it says, uh, when Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. That is such an important phrase. Let me show you why. Not only is Jesus telling them not to be scared, which he is telling them not to be scared because they were scared, but he's also doing it in such a way that he is using two phrases taken from the Old Testament that are commonly used by God in the Old Testament, and he's using those phrases as he speaks to them. First of all, when Jesus says, it is I, if you were reading that in the original text, right? The Greek text, you would have read that and it would say these words, ego, I me, ego, I me. Now that's really important because ego, I me is the phrase I am in the Bible. This is when Moses asks God at the burning bush, right? God appears to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three and he asked God, who are you? Who should I say sent me? God says, I am who I am. Ego, I me. It's this phrase which John, the gospel writer, John, tells us that Jesus used multiple times throughout his ministry. He would say, I am, ego, I, me. And whenever he said it, people accused him of committing blasphemy because he was taking the name of God and using it for himself. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was claiming to be God. But again, remember, it's only blasphemy if it's not true. So here's Jesus using this phrase, I am invoking the name of God for himself. And then he used this other phrase, do not be afraid, which if you read through the Old Testament, particularly the prophetic books, this is one of the most commonly used phrases by God in the Old Testament. And the disciples as Jews who are familiar with the Jewish scriptures, they would have heard these phrases and they would have understood Jesus is claiming to be God. Here he is, the one who is mightier than the waves, like the psalmist said, the one who says, I am the one who says, do not be afraid, they would have understood the significance Jesus is claiming to be God. And not only is he God, but he is God come to them to rescue them. Not only to rescue them from death, but to rescue them from the chaos and the frustration that was overwhelming them. It says in verse 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Mark's gospel tells us that when Jesus got into the boat with them, the wind died down. This miracle was a sign of who Jesus is and what he came to do, that he, the Lord of the universe, entered into the chaos of this world in order to rescue you from the forces of death and destruction, and he is willing to get into the boat with you. That's the message. He's willing to get into the boat with you and with him, you have nothing to fear. You can have courage in the midst of the chaos because the day is coming when he will also put an end to all strife. It will cease forever. You can have the strength to keep going now in the midst of frustration In the midst of of, of trials and hardships, why? Because you have his promise that in him, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain in him because he is working all things together for good For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He is even redeeming the hardships, even the tragedies, the difficulties you face. He is redeeming those things and he is using them to accomplish things in your life and through your life that are building up what Paul calls a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And so we don't lose heart Even when it feels like we're straining against the oars, rowing into the wind, we don't lose heart because we know that God is using those moments to do something in us or through us. It may be different than what we had in mind. We had just a a leisurely trek across the waters, but God's using it to do something maybe different, but meaningful and important nonetheless. And we're of good courage, knowing that no matter how chaotic things might seem, In Jesus, we have stability and security. And with him, not only will we make it through the storms of life, but he will bring us to our eternal destination, our eternal home as well. But again, the question with this miracle, as with all the other miracles that we've looked at here in the Gospel of John, the question is this, do you believe? That's where it leads to this question. Do you believe? Jesus has come to you. He offers you these things. And the question is, will you trust in him? Notice for the disciples, it wasn't enough for them to just recognize that it was Jesus who had come to them and that to recognize that Jesus had the power over the wind and the waves. They also had to go one step further and they had to take him into their boat Listen, for you, it's not enough to just recognize that these things about Jesus are true. You also have to take that next step of choosing to trust in him as your savior and your Lord. And so the question is, will you do that today? Friends, in the midst of frustration and chaos, the presence and promises of Jesus give us courage and strength. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we take communion and close our service.
0: You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.